you have a new record out. I know that. But uh, I'm interested basically in the larger part of your career because it's uh, rather interesting to be a uh, you write a lot about music. I do. And I run and I wonder and there's a certain way that you write about uh well, I've read everything from Cole Porter to all kinds of things. And there's a certain way that, that uh, you have of sort of, um, I, I don't know, mythologizing <laughs> the individual incident in people's careers like that. And I wonder how you would look at yourself that way or whether you do. or whether there's Boy, a I, would, I would really try not to because once you do that, then, um, you know, it's sort of like having a box set. Uh, there you are. It's like it's like this beautiful coffin. Um, I, I I think uh, it's really important not to eavesdrop on your own conversations. You know, when when you're talking to yourself, don't don't ever listen. And so, uh, why do you think that's okay to do with other musicians? Um, I don't know that it's okay to do with other musicians. Um, you know, I, I think I um, I think I approach it as benignly as possible, and uh, I think I come from a background of having been um, sort of a rock critic asshole for a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I I wrote for Cream for a few years when I was about eighteen, nineteen years old, and I realized uh, I only realized a little later, but I I I had a horrible realization that I wasn't actually writing for cream or writing for readers. I was writing to try to impress Lester Bangs. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, he was like, you know, a mentor and a big brother. I didn't know him. I mean, uh, I knew him from 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. phone conversations. And uh, I had a, a really sort of startling revelation because he, he called me up one night about 2 in the morning. Um, and, uh, you know, I was... I had classes the next day. I was, uh, uh, I was maybe a sophomore in college, and he called me up and uh, he insisted that I write a review of Carol King's new album. Uh, I don't remember what album it was, but um, I'd gotten it in the mail, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, I can do that. I'll, I'll do that after class tomorrow." And he's like, "Nope, you got to have it in by 6 a.m." And I was like, "Oh fuck." Uh, and so basically, I, I couldn't say no to him. Um, you know, I stayed up all night. I put the record on a couple of times. Uh, and I wrote something. I don't remember what I wrote, but it was really snotty. And I wrote something really to uh, show off to him. Uh, to show off that I could do it, but also that, uh, you know, I had a background in a lot of different things. And, um, you know, I probably name-checked Huckleberry Hound and Saint-Jean-Perce and Apollinaire and Leave it to Beaver, whatever it was. Um, but I wrote, you know, probably a really snotty review. And it got to six in the morning. And this was, you know, in the age, certainly before computers, and it was before fax machines. So I called the cream offices and I read the review into the answering machine. Mm -hmm. And I got to the end and sort of went, oh man, I bet there's stuff that they uh, couldn't figure out. So I, I added my phone number. So lo and behold, about four or five days later, the new issue of Cream comes out 
and my Carol King review is printed as the lead review, and under my name there's the phone number. Huh. Uh, and I guess they figured, oh, I, you know, he he wants his number there. You know, he wants to get a date. And uh, about uh, two or three hours after I got my copy in the mail, I got a call from Carol King. And, uh, you know, picked up the phone. She goes, you know, is this Brian? I'm like, yeah, I goes, this is Carol King. And I figured it was one of my friends just having a joke. Uh-huh. Uh, and I sort of went, you know, Patty, come on. You know, so she was like, this is Carol fucking King and starts banging on the piano. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> and, and I basically sat there and listened. And she just tore me not one new asshole, but two or three or four or five. Wow. And this is, you know, this is the woman who wrote, you know, oh no, not my baby and up on the roof and, uh, you know, chains and, and all these amazing songs. And she's just angry as can be. And I realized I didn't just write this thing for Lester. I wrote something and it's going to affect her life and her world and her career. And I don't know why I didn't think about that before, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And that uh, pretty much stopped me in my tracks. I, I, I listened to her and uh, I think I changed the way I, I, I wrote uh, mm-hmm. pretty much based on that. And I realized, you know, I had a responsibility to, um, not necessarily to the artists, but to the music, to take it seriously and to take it, into a different place and try to figure out where that place was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and I realized, you know, more and more over time that that place is about storytelling. It's about finding the way we all tell stories. Um, I've never talked about this, so I, I don't know if I'm making sense, uh, even to myself, but. I'm you know, very glad I got you someplace that you haven't talked about yet. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> That's just but, but it's, um, you know, I, I think that if you can connect with what the story is, uh, you know, Charlie Parker famously told uh, musicians that were playing with him to listen to country music if they were in a bar, if they had a jukebox, and to listen to it in terms of a story. And he wanted all their solos to tell stories, mm-hmm. just the way like Hank Williams did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that all, all songwriting and all music, whether it's got words or just a melody, comes down to story and comes down to figuring out how to get from one place to another with as much grace and as much, uh, I don't know, um, visibility as possible. You know, taking in, you know, whatever trees and ducks and uh, flowers are there along the way or potholes or, you know, Shake Shacks, whatever it is, just uh, trying to try to get the view and trying to make sense of that. Mm-hmm. How do you um, feel that that's been developing for you? That now that puts us squarely back in the song in the song world, not the writing world, and and that's good because we're supposed to be talking about your record. And so not necessarily, it's all it's all one thing. You know, that's. Um, you know, it really, it really all comes out of one place. And whether I'm writing a song or, I mean, it's different if I'm performing. It's mm-hmm. certainly different if I'm singing. But 
in terms of the the act of creation it's it's all one thing mm-hmm. and whether that comes out as a melody or or song lyrics or words on a page if you're actually going someplace you know sort of honest and deep or even dishonest and deep if you're actually uh-huh. connecting um it it you have to be prepared to go where it takes you. Uh-huh. And you know? do you feel do you feel that you get there? I mean, are you, are you is this something you're improving at? I mean, obviously, the thing you just described with Carol King means that at that moment it changed your writings. That was a, that was a, a clear demarcation. Yeah. Are there, are there other demarcations since then, or has it been just a gradual progression? Or in what direction has that uh, has that gone and put you where, let's say, the record I'm supposed to be talking about is? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I mean, a couple of things sort of put me into wherever I am now. And one was, um, you know, when I was first in New York, I was playing uh, a, a lot of clubs, both uptown and downtown. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I was just playing by myself or uh, I had a wonderful violin player, Robin Bateau, and sometimes this uh, amazing harmonica player, Donnie Brooks, who would accompany me. But you know, I was doing the singer-songwriter routine and was telling stories and working on these songs. And at the same time, I had these magazines that were after me to write for them. And I didn't realize, um, I didn't realize that the music industry is just one big clusterfuck of, of uh, you know, over, overlapping interests. Mm-hmm. I really thought that you had to keep um, a separation of church and state. Uh-huh. And I felt really weird about the idea that, you know, there were people that I wanted to show my songs to, Mm -hmm. but that the magazines wanted me to write about. And that just felt wrong. That felt like that was opening me up to, um, you know, a weird uh, conundrum uh, and a weird opportunity to... um, I don't, I don't know, to, to basically uh, corrupt myself and corrupt uh, situations, which up till then I thought were pretty pure. And so I, I convinced all the magazines that were interested in me that I should be writing about music from other parts of the world. And it wasn't called world music at that point. I mean, it didn't have a, a name. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I said, well, what about uh, letting me write about what's happening in Morocco and some of this uh, amazing music from Bulgaria and Mongolia and, you know, all these people in Nigeria who are putting out uh, amazing funk records and no one was writing about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of places essentially went, sure, you know, go ahead. And that opened the door to a lot of things for me because, you know, when I would talk to musicians here, if I was dealing with, you know, the pop world of Western pop, People would, you know, if you were a a critic, if you were a writer, people would give you like 20 minutes or half an hour and they would act like they were doing you a favor. Mm -hmm. And they were also telling you stories that that they told like a hundred times before. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just up to you to put a new frame around it. Mm -hmm. But if I went to people in Algeria or musicians from Macedonia and I asked them what their influences were, they were knocked out. They were really excited that somebody from the West was that interested. And, uh, 
wanted to pay attention and wanted to learn. And basically, you know, these amazing musicians would take me to villages where I could see the, the teachers that had shown them different ways of playing or different ways of singing, mm-hmm. that they were really anxious to show me what it was they did and, um, and to let me in on it. Uh-huh. And so, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 you go ahead. Um, I, I'm interested to go down that path a little further. Um, for a couple of reasons, uh, because well, this is going up on my on my site, so it's a conversation. <laughs> but there are interesting ideas about music, and uh, and um, so famously, you went to uh, Morocco to do the Jujuka recording with uh, as well, right? My correct. Yeah. Good. It's, uh, my, my reading isn't off. Right. Great record. Uh, but um, we're, as a writer, we, I mean, because of course, Paul Bowles and, and Burroughs and those people had made contact with that, with, 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 with that culture before and had written so much. Were you, did you have the writing for, were you conscious of yourself as a writer doing in that position again or? or uh... Yeah, very much so because uh... I mean, that's the only thing that I got to bring to that party. You know, I mean, Laswell uh, had orchestrated this whole thing, and he had, um, I think, a lovely engineer, Oz Fritz, and he had uh, Nicky Scopolitis on guitar. He had some some heavy-duty people with him who all brought a lot to the situation. The only thing that I was bringing was the idea of, you know, actually chronicling this and writing about it and making sense of, what it felt like uh, because they were so wrapped up in it that uh, for them, it was really just about getting a record. For me, it was about, you know, getting the whole experience uh, in words and on paper. And, um, you know, that, that music was very, very hard to write about without going into a lot of metaphor and superlatives and, you know, just sort of wacky surrealism because that music isn't written. I mean, that music is is just out in the air, and these guys are um, are just tapping into some primal source, and they're tapping into it in a way that they have for about eight hundred years. So it's um, it's a little different than someone operating in a song or a blues tradition. Uh, expressing their feelings. These, these guys actually have the controls to the hearts of the sun. Mm-hmm. And you, you do get the sense that when, when you're listening to them play that, you know, if they, if they decide to run off the road, that the world might end. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, it really is that, it's that intense. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and they believe that. I mean, they, they believe that they are part of something that's sacred and holy and that's beyond good or evil. It's, it's just pure noise and energy and power uh you know it's it's essentially tapping into the lords of power that's a, and uh it's a pretty uh it's pretty primal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i'm uh it's interesting to talk about i, I i'll expose something like right. half my family's from morocco so it's, it's interesting to talk about it anyway but i was also just on a where are they from uh, well, this split, but my mother was born in Casablanca, but okay. my, her, my grandfather was Berber and they're, they're from Essawaria and down there. 
So, um, but that's, but I haven't spent any time there, but I'm, I'm very interested in music, but that, there's that particular interest, but also I, I was just actually on a record. I'm playing on an album with a couple of musicians from Jajuka. And uh, so it's- Was that I'm, I, I was, it was, yes, I believe so. I was with, uh, I was actually just showed up on it. The, the, the recording actually happened many years ago. I was uh, playing with the Critters, Critters Bug and a band from uh, Seattle, but uh, Scarrick had brought out a couple of those musicians. So it was funny, but I, the record just came out. So I'm interested to hear nice. it. Nice. I look forward to that. It's uh, it's just one track. It's out there, but that's me playing a particularly crazy style. But uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. That's why I'm sort of f fishing up that direction, and I can edit out my previous commentary there. But uh, that's that's the background for that. Um, but what I would like to move on to from that is um, what happened with your writing from that. So you said this was another these these this particular traveling and these sorts of things. There's another thing that informed it. So what exactly changed, and did it change? sonically did it change in the in the song or the lyrical content or both or how and if so how huh. um well let me go back before i go forward okay um so like the jajuka experience was was really primal for me that was very you know very intense but something that happened at about the same time was was sort of more intense and that was uh I got really obsessed with uh, a musician from Algeria named Sheb Khaled. Yeah, uh, great musician. And, you know, basically I talked Rolling Stone into letting me travel with him. And then I pretty much had to uh, find a way to get him to accept me. And that was, um, that was an interesting experience because he had not really had a lot of, I mean, he'd had a lot of French press and he'd had lots of press in the Middle East, but uh, he was pretty suspicious of America and Americans. And so one of my first experiences with him, I, I had traveled to Marseille to hear him play a concert. And the next day he sort of said, oh, you know, come with me a, a couple of kilometers outside of town is a place I want to take you. And it was like, sure. So um, we went off to this little Arab town and uh, he dragged me into uh, an Iraqi bar. And this was right around the, uh, the time of, uh, you know, the first Gulf War around 93. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Khaled sort of has his arm around me. He's like, oh, you're going to like it here. Come on, come on. We go in and then he pushes me into the bar. Everybody in the entire bar looked like Bluto from Popeye. Huh. You know, with you know, huge stomachs and beards that went down to their stomach and these fiery eyes. And, you know, everyone there looked pissed off. And Khaled pushed me into the middle of the room and went, hey, guys, meet my friend, the American. And then he just cracked up laughing and ran outside. <laughs> and uh, I had these guys just essentially push me into the corner of the room, you know, three or four of them just looking at me with these intense burning eyes and their beards like coming straight straight into my face and you know one of them sort of pushed me against the wall and said so how you like george bush <laughs> and i i really i'm not that fast on my feet i just sort of looked at him and went so how do you like saddam <laughs> and everyone just in the room went oh fuck 
<laughs> and within 10 minutes, we were buying each other drinks and we're, you know, in, in my broken French and their, you know, various bits of English and French, we're getting on. And uh -huh. Holly walked back in like sort of 20 minutes, half an hour later and sort of went, okay, I can deal with this guy. <laughs> so we traveled together for, you know, about three or four months. And uh, I got to say, he was, he was and he is one of the most charismatic and talented people I've ever been around. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, about maybe six weeks or two months into traveling together, you know, we're driving along late at night and I sort of figured, you know, what the fuck? So I basically, this is still the age of cassettes. I put a cassette of my band into the, uh, you know, into the cassette player in the car. And uh, he was listening for about 10 minutes and sort of went, you, you're a monkey too? You're a monkey? <laughs> it was like, so we sort of bonded over the idea that, you know, to be a performer is to, you know, essentially you're tapped into something that's sacred, but you're also tapped into something that's really foolish. Yeah. You know, you, you're, you're a, you know, performing monkey. Uh -huh. And uh, once you acknowledge that, then, you know, you can start to find really good monkey clothes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so basically I went pretty much from that, uh, down to New Orleans where we first met and where, mm -hmm. you know, you played on the, a project of mine. Yes. And I started a record down there and uh, man, you know, I had such good people working with me. Um, I think Anders Osborne was playing guitar and Raymond Weber was on drums mm -hmm. and Cornell Williams was playing bass and John Mooney was playing slide guitar mm -hmm. and you had your band. Hey, Killer Sid Straw came down and was doing vocals. And I can't say when, but literally, you know, nine tenths of the way through it, something just felt wrong. And, and part of it was family stuff. Part of it was that uh, my mother was sick and I had to come back and be a, a caregiver. Part of it was that there was something wrong with what I was doing and it wasn't the other people. It was me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was something that just wasn't right. I had incredible help. I had great players and I had pretty good songs, but it felt like what I was doing just wasn't, uh, it wasn't real. And I needed to step away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, and about I, I sort of put that side of my life aside and I got much more involved with writing. I got much more involved with caregiving and being, uh, you know, involved with, uh, you know, helping my family out. Uh, and then I got married and I got involved in being a dad and being a parent. Um, and I guess about 10 or 12 years ago, um, I got a call from a, a sort of a wacky guy that used to manage like Arthur Blythe and used to manage the Holy Modal Rounders. Arthur Blythe, my favorite musician ever. There you go. <laughs> uh, do, do you know The Bear Comes Home? We need to talk about that if you don't. Yeah, we can talk okay. about that. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you know, one, one of the premises of The Bear Comes Home is there's a bear who plays uh, 
yeah. Uh, plays yeah. sax, and people keep mistaking him for Arthur Blythe. I, yeah, I, I love this. I love that you even brought that up. I literally haven't thought about that book since I was since I was about nineteen. I'm, I, I love it though. This is great. Oh, Ralphie is one of my dearest friends. So I wow, um, really. So great. yeah, I mean, I talked to him yesterday about a different book that he's writing. Wow. Uh, but um, so this this uh, sort of crazy manager. I mean, who would who on in their right mind would manage the holy muddle rounders? Um, <laughs> and, um, called me up and he'd always been really supportive of my stuff. I mean, unreasonably so. Uh, and he went, I got this label in Minneapolis that's letting me put out uh, some strange records. Whatever happened to that record you were doing in New Orleans, I could put it out. And uh, of course, you know, I hadn't had anything in music. I hadn't had anything out for years. Uh, and, you know, my immediate instinct was great. And so I went back and listened to some of the tapes and sort of went, man, if, if this is the only thing that comes out in my name and it's the only thing people know of me, it's bogus. Uh -huh. You know, it's just not right. And I tried to figure out with whichever side of my brain uh, works properly. I don't know which it is, but whichever side, I tried to figure out what was wrong and I realized one of the main things was like a lot of the songs that I'd been writing, you know, into my thirties and even into my forties were all from a perspective of someone 18 or 19 years old, someone like looking out the window at the world and trying to make sense of it. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, I sort of built up a persona based in equal parts, uh, you know, in my head at least, of, you know, Nick Drake and Tim Buckley and Tim Harden and uh, a little Skip James in there, but but mostly these uh, songwriters that I, I really admired. And I realized, you know, my songs have to grow up. Mm -hmm. Like, I've been through a whole lot of shit, you know. I've been through a whole lot of experiences learning how to deal with... Uh, you know, with death and with uh, banking and with insurance. And I need to write from a perspective of somebody that has to pay the mortgage. Mm -hmm. I want to write songs from the perspective of somebody that has to get up in the morning and take their kid to school. And not only have to get up in the morning and do that, but who probably has to get up the next day and do the same thing. And so I sort of went into a part of myself that, I hadn't found or I hadn't, you know, noticed for a while and started trying to uh, access who I was as a grown-up. And that really changed uh, my songwriting. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it made it better. I don't know that it made it worse, but it made it, it made it different. And I started writing from a perspective of somebody who had actually gone into the world and, and taken a walk and, you know, maybe move to a couple of different streets. And uh, I could feel the change. And even if nobody else could, that change was really pivotal and really crucial to me and to my development, I guess, you know, as much as a human being as, as a musician. Mm -hmm. 
And so that perspective, I, I, I'm just trying to follow here that from, a, from, from the question I asked, uh, that perspective, that's, do you think the thing that was the big change from the, from, because you had had those experiences with, uh, with and with, uh, and with the other places in the world that you've gone to, that was what, uh, sort of, uh, moved you towards feeling that your previous perspective, this is the change. I'm just confirming yeah. my question. Went yeah, I think, I think so. Good. But once I had done that, once I had sort of found a way into writing from, you know, the perspective of someone who has grown up, I could go back to old songs and I could do them. Uh, and I had no problem accessing the person who had written them. Uh -huh. But now I had access to a different person. And that was, uh, so the challenges are going to be different then uh, for writing uh, in, in whatever, whatever you'd come up with is how you had to write now. Uh, what would you say the challenge was at, 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 at coming up with a new uh, set of systems for projecting yourself or projecting those ideas? Obviously, if you'd spent that much time in music, you'd have to reconstruct the world in some way, I guess, or a language. Yeah, I guess. And, you know, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I'm not being uh, secretive. I just, um, I had to find, a, you know, I had to find different colors to paint with. Uh -huh. And I guess one of the main things that um, that changed for me was I started writing songs without an instrument because mm -hmm. uh, I found that, you know, when I would, when I would pick up a guitar and start fumbling around, I was always going to certain changes and I was always going into certain rhythmic patterns. Mm. And sometimes I could trick myself and I could go into someone else's rhythmic pattern to, you know, break into something else. But if I could start a song when I was walking down the street and come up with a rhythm and a melody, by the time I got back to a guitar or a piano, I was going to go someplace that I probably hadn't gone before. Mm -hmm. And that, that changed the whole feel for me. Mm -hmm. um, again, you know, a lot of this stuff uh, that we're talking about, these are changes that I needed. I don't know that anyone listening to what I do would notice them. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it would be important to them, mm -hmm. but it was really important to me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and once I got clear in that way, then I sort of had, a, I was liberated, you know, also it meant I could make different mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, so Man, that's the best, that's the best thing when you can make a different mistake than the one you've made before. Sure, Sun Ra would be very happy with you. Um, so yeah. what? A, what? A, um, in terms of the record that you just made, which I I I I told Howard, I, I have to talk about this record. So I, this is why I keep uh, somewhat circling back to it. Now it seems like I, well, actually, let me let me try to ask another question. It's sort of more in the direction that I would go in relation to that. But you. You work with a lot of the a lot a lot of similar musicians for a while now. It looks like on some of your rec on your, on your records, certainly Glenn Patra, which we mentioned a lot, and all these things. Is um, 
do they have an understanding for these challenges that go on with you or is it literally just uh, translating the mechanics of the song and and moving onward like you know great players or what's 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 the involvement in, in um, new pictures with records you know both um you know these are guys i'm i'm someone who can play a little bit on guitar and much less on piano um but i'm i'm not much of a player i mean when i produce records i don't always hire myself because uh to play mm -hmm. because my you know what i can do is is pretty limited mm -hmm. um but these guys if you're talking about glenn or byron isaacs um these these guys they play hours and hours every day and so coming up with with ideas and coming up with notes and then taking notes out that's sort of part of their everyday life it's not it's not for me uh, -huh. uh you know but it is for them and so i think on one hand there's uh because we're all really good friends they want to support the music in the best way possible mm -hmm. uh but they also want to support our friendship in the best way possible. And sometimes the best way to do that is to take things away or to, to play on an instrument that they're not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And uh, they trust me and I trust them enough that if they want to do that, I, you know, I let that go. That's, that's, uh, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I think with this record, one of the big things was, this was a real collaboration with a guitarist named Jimmy Zhivago. Mm -hmm. And um, we got very close while, when we started making the record. And, um, you know, he really became my left hand with this. Uh, he brought a lot of ideas to it. Uh, we had very similar reference points. And he brought a lot out of the songs and a lot out of the arrangements. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have made the same record without him. Interesting. And uh, can you tell me about uh, how you came to, be, to know Jimmy Javago altogether? Yeah, you know, Jimmy was, um, Jimmy was a, a, the guitarist in the band uh, Olabel. And uh, he was sort of the wild card. You know, when they started out, they were, um, do you know the band? No, actually I don't. But I Olabel is, is sort of one of the great lost bands of uh, the last 20 years. When they were on, they were, you know, one of the best bands I've ever seen in any genre. Uh -huh. uh, and the, I guess the, this, the, the most common reference point that people use for them is the band. Uh -huh. Because Amy Helm, who was one of the singers in Olabel, is uh, Levon Helm's daughter. Okay. Um, wow. But, you know, Glenn Patcher, who you mentioned before, uh, is a Canadian musician who moved down to New Orleans to study with Ellis Marsalis and got deeply into the jazz world down there. Yeah, we were uh, in the same program. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and you know, he I mean, he's a monster player. And uh, at a certain point, about, you know, 15, 16 years ago, he got really fed up with the jazz world. Uh -huh. He got fed up with the cynicism and with the... Uh, uh, with the life and with the money or lack of. Mm -hmm. And um, 
he sort of moved back into uh, into rock, but in a more sophisticated setting, mm-hmm. uh, and into music that he'd grown up playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know Byron Isaacs, who's now with the band uh, the Lumineers, he mm-hmm. uh, he'd he'd spent years playing with uh, both a lot of jazz players, but also you know a lot of folk singers. I think he had played with. Willie Nelson and Jackson Brown and John Baez. Um, he he brings a, a, a really wonderful melodic and rhythmic sensibility to his music and to mine. Hmm. Um, it just... Um, the, the band itself, Olabel, was very much like the band. And I used to see the band when they were first playing... Uh, when I was growing up, um, mm-hmm. wow. and they were amazing, but they were really, you know, like very static. Like they didn't put on a show. They were there a little bit like Procol Harum. They, you know, these guys just were on stage following the music. But they had enough charisma that it, it, it worked out anyway, right? Was- well, they had enough charisma if you were willing to accept them. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. not everybody was, you know, a lot of the criticism of the band when they first came out was, you know, these guys just stand there. Uh-huh. They're, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not the who, they're not jumping around. Yeah. And Olabel uh, had a lot of the same issues. They were, they didn't have a clear leader. Uh-huh. You know, everybody in the band sang, everybody in the band could have led a band. Um, and they were a little bit static. The only thing keeping them from being static was Jimmy. Jimmy was sort of the wild card. And part of it was that he was often too stoned to remember the changes Uh and he'd have to wing it. Uh, Or, you know, he'd get sloppy and he'd go someplace that the other guys weren't prepared for. And, but it, it, not and, um, but it made, it made this, it made the sound really exciting. Uh, and it brought a life and an energy to them that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. So we fast forward a little bit, and like Jimmy was 20 years older than everyone else in the band. Like when they started out, they were all in their late 20s, early 30s, and Jimmy was probably 50. But when they went out on the road, he was trying to keep up with them in terms of you know carousing, and uh, it just got to be too much, and they basically fired him from the band, but they stayed friends with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is getting somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell. (laughs) Um, So basically, you know, he got himself sober and got himself really clean. And um, it changed him, but it changed him like 100% for the better. You know, it changed his playing. It made his playing richer and deeper. And it brought out a pleasure in his sound that, that wasn't there before. He just got really, really uh, invested in everything he was doing. You know, he, he worked with a lot of different people, you know, with Jeff Buckley, with Glenn Hansard, with uh, a singer named Kim Taylor. Mm-hmm. But he never approached any of these things as sessions. He approached it as like a way into a way into energy and a way into music. Mm-hmm. And um, 
so, you know, we were friends. We'd sit around and play a little bit. Um, and a friend of mine, different friend who I won't name, um, is a wonderful songwriter. And he got uh, an opportunity to make a record for a little Irish label, tiny label, uh, and tiny budget. And he wanted me to produce it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, how can I do this? And I was, you know, I thought about Jimmy as one of the first people I wanted to have on there. And while I was thinking about this, the label called me and said, oh, by the way, we need, uh, we need you to send us some demos. And I was like, fuck, you know, the budget's like, you know, $8,000. Mm-hmm. And if I go in the studio and try to do some demos, we're going to have nothing left. Mm-hmm. And I came up with what I thought was a brilliant idea. It's like, why don't I like organize a little house concert for my friend and we'll record it. And we can take some of the songs and, and send it to this label. And, and yeah, I'll have Jimmy play guitar on it and it'll be great. So I got the two of them together and they sounded wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the night of the, of the concert, you know, I set up a, a whole little recording rig so that we'd have like really good sound and I could play with and, you know, mix it a little bit. And my friend, um, I hadn't realized quite how gun shy he was, uh, the, un- the unnamed character. Uh-huh. And uh, he showed up to the uh, concert so drunk and so smashed on all different pills that he could barely hold a guitar. Wow. And uh, he got up in front of, we had about 75 or 80 people who had, you know, paid good money to see this. And uh, he got really insulting. He got rude. He lashed out at them, lashed out at Jimmy, and then he passed out. Wow. And people actually thought that maybe it was a comedy routine. Uh, it was it was so intense and it was so weird. And I felt really responsible. I, I, I invited people. I corralled people into coming. And, you know, Jimmy was there and he was really hurt by, you know, the whole experience. And I sort of grabbed the guitar and I started playing. And I hadn't played live for ages. And Jimmy and I hadn't rehearsed anything. But... You know, if I thought about it, I would have been terrified, but I wasn't performing. I was just trying to save a situation from getting worse. Mm-hmm. And we wound up playing for about 40 minutes and about 10 minutes into it, we started looking at each other like, this sounds pretty good. We could do some, this sounds okay. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like, oh, why haven't we done this before? And literally, um, the next day, we were able to check my friend into rehab and book a studio for ourselves. And we started working on a record. Oh, nice. mm-hmm. And um, he, you know, he brought so much life and so much energy. Uh, and he, he really shaped the record with me. Um, and, you know, literally finishing the last song on the record, he died. Mm, Um, He had had a couple of health issues. He went into a hospital uh, really to boost his immune system. And they gave him a drug. I believe it was something called Zyrtiga, 
which is supposed to um, get your white cell count up so that you can fight infection. But unfortunately, Zyrtiga is contraindicated for anyone with some liver problems or liver damage. And he had messed up his liver with some, you know, hard living. Mm-hmm. And the Zyrtiga shut down his liver. A tragedy. Yeah. Um, def- definitely, you know, um, miss him every day. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it, it, um, it sort of shocked me to my core. And so I stepped away from, uh, I do have a habit of stepping away. I stepped away from the record for about nine months. Uh, I wound up going to Lisbon where I have some friends who have a band and I recorded with them and performed. That record's with- wonderful, by the way. I just Isn't that fun? I love that. Uh, and, um, you know, I just needed to get myself into a different space. And then, you know, uh, I guess right before the virus hit, I came back, uh, my label was a little anxious and um, I promised I'd have the record ready for them uh, the end of January. So, uh, you know, I took a week in the studio with uh, Glenn Patcha and Glenn brought in a wonderful guitarist named Chris Bruce, Hmm. um, who had just moved here from LA. He'd been playing with uh, Sam Phillips and T-Bone Burnett. Oh yeah. uh, Michelle and Degiacello. And, uh, he he was wonderful in that he brought um, something really foundational to uh, a lot of the songs. He played things that you don't quite hear, mm-hmm. but that tie like tie everything together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a real gift to be able to do that, and it's very selfless. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, then we added a few background vocals, and Hector Castillo mixed the record and. You know, if this weren't uh, the time of the pandemic, I would say voila, but, uh, you know, the the record got put on hold till sort of now. I guess it's coming out in uh, mid-September. Yeah, yeah. Well, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I don't, if you, I, I'm actually checking in to make sure because it's the time it's been, it's been nearly an hour and I just wanted to right. tell you about that. And I didn't want to hold up your life if you were coming to the end of a story. It's, talking to you is my life, Jonathan. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people will get converted. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's, look, it's, you know, I'm promoting myself and I'm, you know, like, I'm holding up a big poster of the record, but I've got to say, I, I've actually listened to this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that about everything that I've worked on. Like a lot of times when you get to the end of a project, you, you know, you feel sort of defeated. You know, you feel like you didn't quite get to where you wanted to get to. It, it uh, You didn't find it. You didn't get there. And I really do feel like with this record, I made something that uh, I could put on and listen to and, and not be ashamed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's big. Uh-huh. You know, you know that feeling, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, it means a lot, uh, you know, to have done something that you're satisfied with for sure. It's massive, you know, uh, and that you can listen to. I mean, I always think that's the, that's the important thing is if you can that's listen it. to your own thing, it's really, uh, re, you know, that's the job you're, I, I, I don't know. I think that's a great thing to be able to 
the, the, you know, that's the, that's the, the thing to achieve. Do you like it? Also, if, if you get somewhere that you hadn't expected. Yeah. You know, if basically, you know, if you know what something is going to sound like, you, you know, why bother? But if, if you go into it with the idea that you could arrive at some place that you've never been before, um, that's exciting. Uh-huh. Um, so, sort of, anyway, um, I'm excited about it. I feel really good about it. And I feel also really grateful to Jimmy for uh, a lot of the energy and a lot of the ideas that he brought to it. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, Brian, I think it's, we got, I think it's great. Thank you very much for talking uh, so openly about, about the stuff that you've done. And, uh, and uh, I'm interested to see where this goes. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to say before we uh, wrap it up? No. Okay, good. Except uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you also for talking.